Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. The three big stories we'll be discussing this week are, firstly, the recession, the second recession since 2015. Secondly, insecurity in the northern part of Nigeria. And thirdly, we'll be discussing latest development in the Lekki massacre investigations. As usual, I'm your host, Nigeria's Best, and co-hosting with me is Phoenix Agenda. We have two guests today. Our first guest is Stephanie. Her Twitter handle is Stephanie Coco. Stephanie is a lawyer and public policy consultant in Nigeria. Our second guest is Dr. Haruna Ngada. Dr. Ngada is a psychiatrist practicing uh, psychiatry in England. So firstly to our guests and to Phoenix. Hi, Nigeria. Thank you. Good to be here. I, know, I, I thought you guys weren't going to respond. Welcome. I was wondering what was going on. Well, yes. It's a, it's a pleasure to have all of you. So, well, uh, Phoenix, on to Buhari. Buhari has scored a hat trick in the recession, in terms of, in terms of recessions. Uh, his first coming in 19 was uh, blessed with a recession. And since 2015, We've now had two recessions. The last one was announced uh, uh, this week. Uh, so firstly, what what is going on? Um, um, I, I can see that his supporters are already trying to blame uh, COVID for one recession. The other recession was caused apparently by the oil, oil prices. Some of them are blaming 16 years of PDP, which is their, one of their favorite excuses. But Phoenix, national opinion, what, what is going on? How has Buhari achieved Three recessions. I mean, he's achieved it the same way um, he's he's achieved other um, failures across um, the, all the things that he said he was going to deliver. I mean, when he was coming in um, under the slogan of change in 2015, he his promises were on a tripod of, you know, restoring economy according to him. Um, securing the country and fighting corruption. On all three, he's failed woefully. I mean, uh, the, 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 the facts are clear to everyone. Um, on the fact that he's given us uh, two recessions, I, I think, I mean, anyone who is a student of history and had bothered to check his antecedents from, from that, uh, what was it? It was, uh, I'm trying to remember how many months he actually was in power for. It was like 20, 21 months or something like that. Um, he had, there was a recession when, when he was there between nine, December 1983, right at the end of December 1983 to August 1985. Um, and so it was to be expected because he's never shown any capacity for um, um, understanding how a, a vibrant economy should run. Um, and so when he came back, and the first, the first recession in 2016 was self-inflicted. There was no, no doubt about it because even with, with um, oil prices having crashed, other oil, mark, oil economies um, didn't automatically go into a recession. And, and, we, and if anybody remembers that in, during the global financial crisis in 2008, um, 2009, we under um, Umar Yadua, we actually weathered that storm and Nigeria came out of it uh, successfully. 
So it's not inevitably that, I mean, if there's a, if there's a shock, you, you automatically go into a recession. So that was self-inflicted because of the, because of the um, quite frankly, useless policies that they were pursuing from um, for banning 41 items to, um, um, you know, um, making the Naira and FX rate the center of their policy and all of that too. Currently, um, the, 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 the recession we have now is as a result of poor policies as well. You've, you've shut the borders for 12 months. What did you expect to happen? Nigeria is primarily a, a trading and service con um, economy. You've, so what did, you, what did you expect was going to happen, COVID or no COVID? You've uh, continued to restrict um, exports. You've continued to restrict um, business from, from, from happening naturally. So it was, it was going to happen. To those who are blaming COVID, I just laugh because Ghana next to us hasn't gone into a recession. So did they not have COVID as well? And let's not, for, let's not forget that Nigeria's, Nigeria shutting down the economy was only for a brief period of time between April and May. So you, you don't have the same impact on your economy as the countries in the West and even to the East who literally shut down their economy for months on end, which can explain why they fell into a recession. Nigeria's economy has been open for the larger part of, of, the, of, the, of the COVID period. And you have been pumping money into your economy, so you've said, um, through all the central bank interventions and all of those kind of things. So this has nothing to do with COVID. It just continues to have everything to do with the poor policies that they put in place and, and the fact that they clearly do not understand how to manage an economy and, and make it um, vibrant, make it positive for everyone, uh, which is in stark contrast to the PDP that they continue to blame. I mean, we, we had 16 years of PDP and for all their faults, I mean, the economy was one of their strong points. I mean, I was saying to people on Twitter that imagine if it was Buhari and the APC that, that took over power in 1999, where would we be? I mean, it, it, even to think about it, I mean, I, I, I'm just <laughs> thankful <laughs> to, 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 to God that we didn't have that kind of a scenario because clearly they have no idea of, of, of what to do. The, the chairman of the economic advisory committee that Buhari set up, that everyone thought was going to bring some positivity, was saying recently that Nigeria needs to be creating 19 million jobs a year to, to, to even sort out the crisis that we have today. You know what has happened under Buhari? Unemployment has tripled. So someone is telling me today that it's COVID that caused the, the economic crisis. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's poor policies by Buhari and his, and his enablers. Uh, primary, uh, one of the key ones being this, uh, the central bank governor, who quite frankly is the worst central bank governor that we've ever had. And, and, and that's saying quite a lot because we've had some really crazy ones. Um, but, but you had somebody who, who thinks defending the Naira is his mandate instead of looking after inflation, instead of making sure that the economy works, continues to do counterintuitive policies, such as banning maize and then realizing that it has caused scarcity and then giving import waivers to only four companies. So how do you expect to have a positive and vibrant economy when you keep doing all of these crazy things that, that, that pull us back? So 
I mean, people's, people looking for excuses, they will do that. I mean, they're psychophants after all, but the, the truth, you can't, you, can't, you can't lie against the facts. I mean, it's, it's plain to see for everyone. I agree, Phoenix. The, one of the interesting things about Buhari's government is, as with every crisis that seems to emerge, they always walk into the crisis because various people would be warning them in advance that if you do this, a crisis will, will, will emerge. They will ignore it and shout you down or tell you to keep quiet. You're a supporter of corruption, that this is PDP nonsense talking. And you'd be giving them warning after warning after warning, and then the crisis will eventually come about, yet they will still pretend to be shocked or still try to pass the buck, even though they were warned in advance. So just recession uh, was something they warned about, their policies on border closures. They were told it would have it would cause inflation and, and affect trade, but they did not listen. And we are now where we are, or as the vice pre president will say, we are now where we are where. So I'll bring in, the question for you is, obviously, the in economic terms, you look at data and you look at the effects on, I know you're in Nigeria. So we can see the data says there's a recession. The data says unemployment is at record levels of Nigeria. Can you actually feel it? Can you feel the economic crisis? Um, yes, feel the economy. Can definitely feel the economic um, crisis here in Nigeria. For example, fuel uh, is now one seventy, as opposed to the one forty something it was months back, and that has automatically added to the prices of goods and services in Nigeria. For example, Bolt and Uber recently had an upward review of their prices. Even though both is, gives like 400 Naira discounts to riders, it's still, there has been an upward of the prices. Then you come down to food. Rice has added money, meat has added money with as much as 50, 70% increase. For example, um, during the lockdown, rice was about 850. The bowl they use in measuring the rice. Now it's about 1,101 Beef is now getting close to 2,000 a kilo. This was as opposed to the 1,400, 1,500 it was, and so many other things. Wow, onions is now the new gold. If you have a basket of onions in your house, you're like, you can see people doing memes with onions and claiming they are the test men in Babylon and stuff like that. That is to tell you how this um, economic crisis and this recession exacerbated the cost of living. Um, public transport has everything has added money and if you are wondering okay these things have increased in prices the earning capacity has not increased increased the naira is on a free fall and keeps losing daily um one dollar to a naira now is about 470 480 almost 500 pounds was 650 the last i saw 
105 naira to one pound. Sorry, the last I saw on the TL. And some states are finding it difficult to even implement the 30,000 naira uh, minimum wage. Um, some states are not even paying. Talk less, they are not even talking about reviewing minimum wage from 18,000. And they are even finding it difficult paying that 18,000. Some federal government parastatal uh, ministries have been delaying salaries, sort of. So you begin to, how are people coping? How are people surviving? Everybody from the rich to the poor to the middle class is really feeling the crunch of this economic crisis and attendant, um, and attendant recession. So it's, it's really biting hard over here. It's not funny. Yeah. Thank you, Stephanie. I can only imagine if there's record unemployment and at the same time, the cost of living has also gone up. People are paying more for rice. People are paying more for uh, petrol. So I can imagine, I can only imagine how conditions must be. Uh, Dr. Haruna, Dr. Ngada, um, I know you're from the Northeast, from Borneo. your relatives over there. Um, as you, you well know, there's insecurity in that region. So are they, how, how, what is the impact of a poor economy mixed with insecurity? How, how are your relatives and, and your contacts there? How are they coping? Um, yeah, thanks. That's quite um, a good um, question, you know, to ask, you know, with the economic recession and then the insecurity. I mean, each of them in itself, it's a problem, you know, for when you have both of them together, then like uh, fella will say double wahala for dead body, you know. So it's a double tragedy sort of, you know, and I mean, for me, even from here, you know, you get calls and messages and Facebook messages and emails and things from people who ordinarily are working and you expect to be doing well, but with the way things are, then they are calling to ask for help because it's just reached that stage where people have to, you know, forget whatever it is or uh, swallow their pride to ask for money because of what is happening so yeah it's 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 really a sad situation and i mean when we say the north is you know uh, as a whole i think it's fair to also clarify that you know places like you know meduguri or borno state where i'm from like in meduguri for example would be probably a bit um, much safer now compared to you know places in maybe some other places in like the northwest and things like that maybe places like Zamfara Katina where people can't even go to farm or do things anymore but yes um there's record unemployment unemployment and insecurity it's just adding and adding to the massive suffering people are going through in that region you know and I mean it's worth saying that um obviously with places in the northeast we have a lot of NGOs who have now become maybe the major employers of labor, you know, in which is quite a shame that an economy is depending on NGOs, you know, but that's what has happened in, you know, the Northeast now. And obviously with the poor economic policies and it's even just getting worse by the day. So yeah, that's, um, you know, just from the Northeast, a uh, sort of, um, you know, overview of what's happening. And like I said, in the Northwest, it will be, far, far more different. Probably when we come to insecurity, then we can talk more on that. Thank you. 
Well, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Ngada. But to the follow-up question to that is, a lot of the, as you know, Nigeria is an interesting country in the sense that political commentary oftentimes is split between North and South, even the debates on social media. So it's safe to say that for many, is someone who they've already condemned and said, look, this man is incorrigible. But there seems to be a lot of support for him North. And I'm just trying to, the question is, even as bad as the economy is now, do you get the impression that the people in the Northeast are fed up of Buhari or do they hold him responsible for the, for the, for the condition they're in or do they still support him? Okay, well, um, I think, again, it's it's good to look at it um, this way, that um, Buhari naturally has a large followership in the North. So, I mean, and, and you would have seen people that would have, that have said, you know, even if Buhari kills their parents, they will still go with him, you know, because he has that sort of occultic type following, especially in the North. But I think in people's homes and in their private, when you have private conversations with people, I think they are cursing, but in public, they don't want to be like the, you know, um, the, 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 um, like call it the, um, not the scapegoat, like they don't want to, or something like that in that sense. But when you have private conversations, I think people are fed up. People have seen that, look, this guy hasn't given us anything like we thought, you know, he's not the messiah we all thought and followed, you know, without even thinking twice. So, yeah, privately, there's a lot of, you know, failure that people are professing, but in public, again, people wouldn't come out to say these things. I mean, it's a predominant, don't forget the ethno-religious side to things, you know, it's predominantly maybe um, a Muslim type community. And Buhari, you know, has always had this um, thing where people look at him as probably quite um, from the religious aspect, I think people seem to like him because they feel he would to an extent promote some of the things maybe they may like in that sense, you know, and even, even if you were to be suffering, you know, you wouldn't want to come out to condemn him because you'll get a lot of backlash and things like that, you know. But yeah, I think people are fed up, you know, but that's, and I mean, obviously you can see from the last election, he got, he still got quite, I mean, a big chunk of votes from, you know, that region, despite the fact that these things haven't changed in terms of their economic lives, isn't better. Okay. You said that, uh, Dr. Gara, it's interesting that you said uh, people in private say one thing about Buhari, but in public, they have uh, told the line and pretend to worship him. I, I, if I, I remember reading uh, or watching that video of Governor Yaya Bello uh, talking about uh, Buhari, he says uh, he called Buhari, he said Buhari is like a snow in quotations, and then said if, if this was Islam, we would call him Wali. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what that is. Buhari is some sort of a mythical, heroic, holy figure. But as you've, right, as you've probably said, maybe that's just a public public show of worship in private. Maybe they don't, they don't think those things. But uh, this moves us on to our next topic, which is insecurity. Uh, this week alone, we first saw reports that a boss carrying 
senior police officers from, I think, Bornu to somewhere in the Northwest was kidnapped. And then we also had heard reports that the chairman of the APC in Nasarawa was also kidnapped and has sadly, unfortunately for his family, has been executed. And we also received reports that the governor of Bornu was driving from, I think, Meiduguri to Baga, and his convoy came on the on their attack. That's the reports we're receiving. So, to what what is uh, going on? Is 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 it that Buhari has just surrendered in security? Because I know last week he was in marathon meetings with his security chiefs, but he seems after every meeting he holds, insecurity seems to go up even more. Um, I, I think last week as well, the, the, the traditional ruler in, in southern Kaduna was executed by uh, bandits. So, Phoenix, uh, have we, is, this, is it time to give up on insecurity or what is going on? I think we already gave up on insecurity even before um, um, the last elections. So, for me, it was quite surprising that somebody with um, with clearly a failure mark in, in, in the one area you probably thought that he would uh, do well, you know, uh, with all the myth about Metasini and all of that. Um, that's, that's the one area that probably surprised most people that he has been um, totally inept at, at, at having a handle on things. Um, and it must be said that perhaps his, uh, his physical condition and, and shortcomings in, in terms of being able to impose his will um, has really exacerbated um, that situation. Well, clearly, quite clearly, I mean, I mean, we've given, right now, it's, you know, that there's this meme that they always show on, on, on Twitter that's, that says, God save us. That's, that's the situation we're in. I mean, every, almost every part of Nigeria, there's something going on around insecurity. It used to be in 2015 May um, that you, we had this one major area in the Northeast that uh, uh, Dr. Ngada would attest to, seemed to be the, the key area where we were having issues. There were a few skirmishes here and there, but nothing that serious beyond the Boko Haram problem. Now, in the five years since then, you've had um, Shiite killings, you've had clashes with IPOB, you've had um, Boko Haram died down a bit and now resurgent to such a degree that is, I mean, truly scary. You have the fuller new headsman crisis, you have Southern Cardinal taking a, a very, a much worse dimension. You have banditry all across uh, northern part of Nigeria with um, Zamfara and, uh, and, and, and parts such as that under, um, under, um, so even the, even the president's own home state in Katsina, I mean, I saw a video of, uh, of people in Katsina who were actually singing um, songs against him. I mean, it has gotten that bad. Um, and, and, and then you go, I mean, the Abuja Kaduna um, highway is, 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 I mean, people can't go through that route without being um, worried about being, about being kidnapped or, or robbed or killed. There's kidnapping is right. So Nigeria, I mean, Nigeria is, a, an insecure state. And so, I mean, clearly, um, and this, and this had, had been the case in his first term. We had cases of, of, of people being kidnapped. We saw, um, I mean, the, 
the um, Red Cross uh, people who were kidnapped and, and the lady that was, uh, I forget her name now, who was executed. So, I mean, clearly Buhari has failed in the area of, of security. He hasn't been able to secure the nation. He hasn't been able to, to really improve on, rather it has worse, the, the situation that he met. And he hasn't held anyone to account, which for me is the most egregious part of it. Because it's one thing for you, for, for you to be failing so dramatically, but then not to hold the people that you have given the responsibility to account. The dude hasn't changed any service chief. He hasn't, he hasn't, I mean, so what's the point? I mean, if, if these people can be in office for five years and can't achieve any a modicum of success, why are you keeping them in place? Um, even, the, even the Jonathan who was, who was said to be ineffectual still went through chiefs of army staff and service chiefs as he was trying to find a solution. You that's, that should have that background from the military, having been a military head of state and with a, with a, with a long career in, in the armed forces, is unable to have a handle on, on the security solution in Nigeria. And the problem even for me is there is no intelligent solution that they bring to bear. So everything is always force, force, and more force. There's no, there's no strategic solution that you see that says, okay, we have understood the problem. This is how we tend to address it. Rather, they keep coming up with some harebrained schemes. schemes. Um, you, you pay ransom to, to Boko Haram, they come back again, and now they are, they are, they are, they are killing your officers. You, you start to rehabilitate um, some ex-militants, but in some other parts of the country, you, you are putting down people. You know, so it, it just shows that they don't understand what they're doing. Um, and, and we just have to hope that, I mean, we don't have a major, major combustion that truly, truly uh, puts the, the country and, and, and the citizens at risk because we are on the precipice. Uh, the longer this goes on, especially with the aftermath of the NSARS crisis and all the looting and vandalization and seeing the police now withdrawn and, and I mean, largely unable to keep the peace. And, and really at the end of the day, do you want to permanently have soldiers on the streets trying to do policing? They don't even have that many. So, I mean, for me, it, it's, I'm just hoping that things can, I mean, that we can continue to waffle along without any major, major action. I, th I think it sounds insensitive as I'm saying it because people in the Northeast are living in fear. They, some of, a lot of them have not been able to go back to their homes. But I'm just hoping that it doesn't become such a massive thing because 200 million people in a state of really bad insecurity would be something that, I mean, we won't be able to get back from. I'm hoping it doesn't get that bad. Thank you, Phoenix. I, I agree. We don't want a situation where the nation implodes because a refugee crisis involving Nigeria will swallow up our neighboring countries. And Chika, the question is, I know Phoenix has talked about security, but in the question itself, I can think off my head, at least three military bases in Kaduna. I know there's NDA, there's the Command and Staff College, and then I think there's the Army Infantry Training School, all in Kaduna. So is it that 
traditional rulers are being killed by, in quotations, bandits in a state that is, has the most, I think, the most militias in Nigeria. Yes, um, you're right. Kaduna has the most military bases in Nigeria, not only in the town, but in not only in the central, I mean, in the state capital, but also in other towns that are in other areas of the state. When the Southern Kaduna, um, when the Southern Kaduna crisis came up, I saw a couple of tweets saying that. Um, they had built up some form of army base at um, Kafanchan or somewhere like that. And how is it conscionable that we have a base there and we have policemen there and other security forces and these headsmen are still able to operate? Then on the way to the airport, that's towards Jaji, there's another military, um, the N the university, then inside Kaduna Town, you have the Air Force base, that's a Kawo, and different other places that we have command, where the popular command junction is, if you're coming from um, the south or you're coming from Abuja. Now, the, the answer to your question is like Phoenix Agenda said, like Phoenix, Phoenix Agenda said, there is not, the, the, the armed forces in general does not have a coordinated plan or some sort of cohesive plan to actually tackle these um, killings or kidnappings and all that. And it is evident in how the insecurity in the North has metastasized from the Northeast and it's now in almost every state in the North. These days, farmers can't go to their farms to harvest because they are required to pay for almost a million naira to bandits and that in turn has affected harvest and the prices and to the inflation in food prices so if the um um what is it um sorry if the if there is that amount of if there is the growth slash explosion of insecurity in the north it's what Either there is no cohesive plan between the various branches of the armed forces to actually tackle this um, insecurity. There is no will by the executive to actually step in and take decisive action in the solving of this um, insecurity. For example, the Kaduna Abuja Road, I have gone on that road this year at least five times. And I can tell you authoritatively on the stretch of road from Jere Junction down to Command Junction in Kaduna, where you drop, where you either straight road going to towards Zaria Kano, or you turn right going towards the Command um, Secondary School in Kaduna, there is no single checkpoint on that road, no single police officer. It's only when you get towards um, the police station around um, Pijo Junction that is where you see. Kaduna is um, like a civil defense sort of that is under the auspices of the Kaduna state government. But I can tell you authoritatively on the Kaduna um, Abuja Express Road from Jere down to, um, what is it called, down to Pijo Junction, there is no express 
there is no checkpoint on that road. If you then turn left to Jere and you're coming towards Abuja through um, Jere, through Buari, through Duse, then you can in Abuja. You will find just two police checkpoints and the checkpoints are not heavily manned. They're just like about two officers there. Hi, well done, well done, and then you pass. Then the next one you get, you get to is like an army of depending on where you pass. When you're leaving Duse, coming to Buari, you see like an army checkpoint there. That is like the only significant. But from that point down to Kaduna, only the pol only two police checkpoints, and that's this thing. And that's the will, and that shows you where the head of the government is regarding insecurity. Because how can you have so much kidnapping going on a particular road, road for over two years, and then you have not made any plans to actually put military and security personnel on that road to checkmate uh, menace of kidnappers and bandits and headsmen. But then in less volatile places down south, like for example, in the southeast and the south south, every 100 or 150 meters, you find all manner of checkpoints from NDLEA to customs to the military, to civil defense, to VIO. And you're wondering, are we in a war zone? So in conclusion, the, if traditional rulers are getting kidnapped in the north, if there is a there is an explosion of insecurity in the north, if the insecurity is getting worse as the day goes by, we have to go back to the drawing board and try to get the arm to come together, get a plan, and say, okay, this is how we're going to do this, and the government has to has to be making that plan work because it's a different thing to have a plan and then execution is another thing. So the government having a security forces having a plan to work towards ending this menace, we will see an improvement in the security situation. Thank you. That's Thank you, uh, Stephanie. I think you've made, I, I, I agree with the points that you've made particular it is it seems true to me that there, there's clearly no coordinated plan to secure the because as you said we've got all these military bases all these police stations yet they're not placing them the placing the troops at strategic we know the crimes are taking place so it seems to be a total failure of leadership uh dr ngada and this is the the point i bring you in because the governor of your home state in Bornu, uh, Governor Zulum. Uh, this is like the, I think about the third time now, he apparently come under attack by uh, bandits or Boko Haram. And there've been many attempts on Meiduguri as well. Many people have lost their lives in insecurity, but the last time he was attacked, I remember he was on video still saying Buhar Claim that it is the fault of the officers and Buhari is not to blame. And people on social media and myself cannot understand that. How they've almost just killed you. Your state is under attack and you're still shifting blame from the commander in chief. When 
under previous administrations, people blame the under in chief. So why, why is your governor reluctant to hold Buhari responsible for insecurity? Yeah, I think that's, um, again, we need to, I'll, I'll just, before I go back to this question, I think um, we'll also go back to the point, you know, um, Stephanie was talking about, you know, if the insecurity not in, as a whole. Imagine if it were someone else that was president, not Buhari, you could imagine the outrage and people that have been marching back left, right and center to say, oh, the president must go. But you can see people are crying in private, but then wouldn't publicly come out to, you know, condemn him. The past would have seen Northern Governors Forum, Northern Elders Forum, or the Northern whatever coming together to cry and to, you know, cause chaos to say, no, they don't. Harry, it seems you just come in, you know, private, you know, and come out in public and say, you know, all is well. And then coming to the issue of um, Borno State, you know, Governor Zulum has been attacked quite a number of times. I think the most recent was today where I think they've said advanced team was attacked. It's the convoy. I don't know if he was in it or not in it. And Nigeria's, if you look at Nigeria's uh, leadership structure, we all know it's very centralized and you don't want to be fighting the person at the top because he controls the resources in terms of military, economic and things. So you have to be a bit tactful when you talk about. So for, I wouldn't expect Governor Zulum or any governor in, at all in Nigeria, to, you know, come out and say, oh, it's the president's fault. It's this. I mean, we've seen Sonia Oluwit, it's all the massacres and everything in Lagos. He would be the ones taking pictures and running to Asorok to show Buhari as if, you know, they're in a photography competition or something, you know. Whereas if it were someone else, they, when I remember when Jonathan was in power, I'd be, oh, why hasn't he gone here? Why hasn't he gone here? So it's really difficult, um, you know, sometimes blaming and then knowing the kind of person probably um, President Buhari is, you know, is again, you don't want, the governor wouldn't want to go into that kind of fight with him, you know, and that's why he wouldn't come out to say, publicly say, oh, it's Buhari at fault, you know, I mean, but going back to Governor Zuluman, you know, I, you know, he's been attacked quite a number of times. People, I suppose the question people have been asking as well is, why does he keep going to Baga? Why is it important to him knowing that he's putting the lives of others at risk and things like that? But, you know, you should understand that Baga is probably the biggest commercial center region, you know, and that's like, you know, where the, all the fish markets and things, the farms, um, I think Stephanie talked about onions being gold, obviously they farm onions. And what he's trying to do is to bring people back, you know, from the IDPs back to their homes, to their farms, to make sure this and economy starts picking up. But we all know, or we've seen, and we've heard online, um, I mean, we've read on so many media outlets that certain people, the crisis to go on because they've sort of taken over the commercial activities in that area and you know, in every crisis, there will be people that will benefit. I mean, or want it to end. Typical example would be like in the terms of electricity in Nigeria, where people don't want that crisis to end because they sell generators. So the same way with the Baga issue, where some people are really bent on these things continuing as it is because they are now manipulating or controlling those markets and things. And the governor is trying to say, look, go back to their homes, to their farms. You know, life has to return to normal and. I will do everything in my power to make sure it happens. And unfortunately, as we know, 
and information is always leaked. Otherwise, it's really hard knowing when the governor will be moving or things, but you'll see that almost every time he's moving, that's when there's an attack. When he's not moving, there's really no attack going on. So that shows there's, um, you know, see security has been compromised to an extent, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to extent is but that still ties in with the fact that yes certain people don't want this crisis to end because they are benefiting whereas you have a governor here who is state work and things come back to normal i think just last few weeks ago he's developed a 25-year plan for the country i think if you have a chance to look at that document and you can see this is a governor who means well for his state so you wouldn't he wouldn't have the he wouldn't be able to fight the center in terms of come out you know, say bad things about the president directly. So that's just. Well, I'm, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to understand that point, Dr. Ngala, because you said was a former president, for example, if he was governor, it was President Jonathan, the governors would have openly come out and blamed Jonathan for it. Yeah. Then they were not afraid of fighting the center. But all of a sudden, you're also now saying the governor of Borno doesn't want to call out uh, Buhari because. He doesn't want to fight the center. So why yeah. was it okay to fight the center when Jonathan was president, but suddenly to protect your state now, you shouldn't fight the center? I'm trying to understand the... And like I said, you should know the kind of um, president in power. And that's why I said you, obviously, knowing the kind of presidents um, President Buhari is, you know, his, uh, Jonathan had a different approach to governance. And let's also... I think it's also good to say the way Nigeria, it's quite skewed to favor the North, you know, in the sense that you've got 19 states, isn't it, from the North, and then the other parts have the remaining states. So it's usually easy to put pressure on anyone that is not a Northern president. And I think that's quite an unfair thing, you know, in terms of, but that's the way the country has been made. And so for the, uh, I mean, for um, Jonathan, for example, who was uh, obviously from a very, we'll say, you know, from the South South, which is quite a small place, it was easier for them to all come out and say, oh yeah, 19 governors have come out to say, we are against you. This is what we want. We are all fighting you. Whereas case of Buhari again, we know the kind of person he is, one, two, we know that again, the Northern states, you know, wouldn't want that to happen. So yeah, you don't want to fight this. And I think Tinubu tried fighting with Obasanjo and we saw that it's caused a lot of problems for him, even though in maybe towards in retrospect, they were paid back the money and things, but you could see that type of thing with the, how powerful he was, but he wouldn't want to fight the center and it's got him not center is quite powerful and depending on who is there, you know. So especially with the way the country is skewed, it will favor the North if nothing different is done. All right. I think I can see check. No, thank, thank you for your clarification, Dr. Ngada. I can see uh Chica's hand is up. Uh, obviously we, we have time constraints. So if you want to make your point, could you make it a, a very quick point, Chica? What were you going to say? Uh, it has to be a, a less than 30 second point. Uh, sure. Um, I think I, I, I disagree with um, Dr. Ngada. Um, um, fighting Obasanjo actually helped Lagos kind of move away from dependence on federal allocation. And we can see how Lagos has one of the highest IGRs in the country. And that was because of that going head to head with the power, with um, the center. So I feel 
um, you know, a little disagreement, a little quarrel with the center is not always a bad thing. We saw how the North puts on Jonathan regarding the insecurity in the North. And whether we like it or not, he rose to the occasion and he sat up. Even though we only started seeing the effects of that um, pressure towards the end, towards the 2015 election, but it kept him on his toes and and night to actually improve the um, situation. But then this one that the current crop of Northern governors do to say, okay, the center is not taking this thing as serious as they should. No offense, but I feel it's some sort of hypocrisy because with the way events have gone down in the North, you will see go governors will rather sit down with the band along with them a lot of the a lot of the um people in the north at first there were protests and then they carried some of them the protests have died down and now a lot of them are oh yeah allah allah should come and save them allah yeah isa and all that and you wonder are these the same people that were so bold and you know um allowed bold allowed in Jonathan and GEJ and this thing just a few five a short five years ago are these the same people that can't even say Buhari we voted you are disappointed in you you're not taking the north you're not taking the security in the north seriously they would rather call on other elements and call on other mythical creatures than actually put the blame where where it is supposed to be so that's my take on the um, fighting with the center doesn't necessarily end badly or it's not a bad thing. A lot of good can actually come from going with the center, disagreeing and peaceably and coming to the table to renegotiate terms and all. To strive not a bad thing after all. So that's my own take on the, this thing. Thank you. Well, thank you. With you that healthy a healthy debate and healthy pressure is good for the country and i think uh, buhari deserves to be put on his and because he's been put on his toes that's why we are where we are but on to our final topic the update on the lecky massacres uh, this week it started off with cnn publishing an expose providing hard evidence of the military's in the shootings in the in Lecky, despite their denials. It was a very detailed video, showed evidence of the, the barracks. They showed the times they arrived at the barracks, showed them opening fire. So they were basically confronted with uh, conclusive proof that they were They then had to admit, basically admit the involvement at the uh, hearings in Lagos State, although they're still, uh, they shot in the air or that they didn't kill anybody. But then Lai Mohammed, the Minister for Information, who seems to live up to his name, Lai, uh, denied the military's involvement, denied that he killed anybody, and then threatened to impose sanctions on CNN. So the first question to Phoenix, obviously, because of time, we have about 10 minutes to go. So if you give us a, a two-minute explanation for, for 
Ahmed. What 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 is going on with him? Why is he threatening CNN? And does he what what can he actually do to CNN? Well, like, like Mohammed has been known to to toe the line of uh, propaganda and uh, and more more even more dastardly um, subverting uh, free speech and actually trying to subvert um, press freedom. Um, like Mohammed, it was who went around all the media houses um, and and practically um, coerced them into dumbing down the reporting on, on Boko Haram's atrocities uh, when, when this government first came into office. And we've seen subsequently um, some of the actions that um, the MBC, which is ostensibly uh, under his ministry, has taken against media houses. I mean, even recently, um, they, they find um, was it Arise? Um, I, f- I forget the other two. There were three media houses that they find um, telling them that they, they had first sent out a memo to, to all the media houses that they should cover um, the NSAS protests in a way that doesn't embarrass the government. And then they proceeded to, to find um, those three media houses. So like Mohammed not only lies perpetually, where he also tries to subvert uh, press freedom and, and make sure that um, only news that is favorable to him and his uh, Asorok uh, masters um, see the light of day. But I mean, he, 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 I think he's about to meet his Waterloo because uh, I, I don't see how he's going to sanction CNN. And perhaps maybe if he does try to, to um, twist them, maybe that might even help um, us get CNN focusing fully on Nigeria and deciding to, to take him on and, and continue to uh, expose them for the, for the lies that they continually tell, especially around the Lekki massacre. Because with each successive day, we see stories changing, both from the Lagos state governor's uh, perspective to the army who has gone from we were not there to we were there to we had blanks, to we have live ammunition, you know, every day it, it, get, it keeps unraveling and it, and it throws and it shines more light on the deceitfulness of, of this government and the actors um, who, who, who are part of, of, of the entire um, negative if, um, um, issues that we've had over the last five years, which is culminating in this total NSARS, Lekki Massacre saga. So I'm, I'm hopeful that yes, they continue to unravel. And that um, now that we have international spotlight beamed on them, that it continues to show them up for, for what they are. Thank you. Thanks. I, I hope you're right that the, I hope the international spotlight uh, puts them on notice and puts them on their pressure so that they, they pay the price. To Dr. Ngada, the question for you is about the Nigerian army. They, they, they've lied basically from the beginning and they, even now they're still, they're gradually admitting their involvement but still lying about other parts. And what I'm trying to understand is, what is it about this army that makes them lie all the time? Why, why, can they, why could they not just come clean from the beginning? Why did we have to go through this tooth extraction process where at every point, you had to literally confront them with, uh, with, with full evidence before they'd, they'd admit 
So why? Why are they lying all the why did they lie all the time, Dr. Ngara? Um, I think it's good to understand that um, the army is used to fighting such um, things. Um, you know, in the past, they were, we didn't have all these sort of social media enlightenment, and they could sweep things under the carpet or bring their own versions of events. Things will, you know, be swept under the carpet, or as they say, or using Fela's fam famous song, you know, army arrangement, they will have something between them. Everyone will go. But I think now with the power of social media, I don't think they've expected that people would be able to, you know, collect such evidence and things against them. And so they had reacted initially by just going straight away to say, oh, we're not there. And then when more and more evidence started coming, they started thinking, oh my God, these guys have got us. Let's push one story first. And then they've brought up one story of, oh, it was rubber bullets. And then confronted with more and more evidence, you know, and then they also have to their story. So I think they were not prepared from the beginning, you know, because probably they are used to how in the past it would just go with what everyone will agree. But now I think things have changed. So again, no one wants to take the blame, isn't it? Because uh, initially the governor said he didn't call them. They said, no, it was you, you know, and now everyone is blaming the other person, you know. So, so I think social media, I would say, has contributed so much to what we are seeing and how the army's story is evolving. I think they were not prepared and they thought it would be business as usual. But I think this generation of the power of social media is keeping people on their toes. And I'll just go back slightly to one point, you know, um, raised from the last conversation. I think Lagos State can fight the federal government. They have the resources and the ability for a state like Borno, Yobe, Zafara, if, if tons of the top, I think it will be the end of us. But yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ngada. I like the way you put it, an army arrangement, as Fela would say. Uh, Stephanie, the final question to you. We only have about three minutes to go. So uh, we, we have three, you have three minutes to answer this question. So as Dr. Ngada has said, the army likes to do what Fela would call arrangement. So the question is, despite all the evidence uh, coming to the fore, and despite the hearings, the Lagos uh, tribunals, what do you have faith that whatever is admitted will lead to consequences? Or do you think at the end of the whole process, the tribunal will come to another army arrangement? Yes, I believe that whatever is admitted or the final um, resolution of the tribunal will definitely lead to consequences. It may not be now, it may not be consequences um, under the Nigerian justice system, but justice will definitely come because we've seen um, hashtags and um, we've seen hashtags and petitions to foreign governments to sanction the perpetrators and the, um, the Lekki massacre. We have seen tweets from um, people, Nigerians based in the UK saying that the parliament will debate the NSAS protest and especially the Lekki massacre tomorrow. We've seen tweets from um, the ICC handle saying that uh, 
investigation is going to be launched. So the tribunal, whatever the tribunal, whatever decision or um, judgment, not judgment per se, conclusion, yes, the tribunal reaches, it's going to be on record. It's going to be recorded and it will be there for posterity's sake that yes, Lekki massacre happened. Yes, it happened so so and so day. And these were the perpetrators. So whether justice will come, it would eventually come. But justice delayed in this case, I don't believe it's justice denied because justice will definitely come. And Nigerians are not going to forget the Lekki massacre anytime soon. So yes, that's my take. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I hope you're right. I hope that justice eventually comes. In my personal view, I'm not very optimistic. I think from the Nigerian government, government side, I think they will attempt another army arrangement, but I'm happy to be proven wrong. But I think you're probably right that in the long term, unless the international community takes on this case, then it might die another death like many other inquiries in the past. Our time is up. So firstly, I must thank our guests. Uh, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Dr. Ngada. And thank you, Phoenix, for being on the show. I also thank our loyal listeners who listen every week and give us helpful feedback. But until this time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Nigeria's best. And thank you, Steph and Dr. Donna, for joining us today. Um, thank you, listeners. Continue to do this uh, because you are listening out there. Um, and once again, we, we want to keep the focus on, on the Lekki massacre and to ensure that justice truly gets served. Um, bye, everyone. Have a good week. <laughs>